Welcome back to the 85th episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, including talking about the price of eliminating consequences, how the U.S. has a debt problem and Biden's budget won't solve it, and a new bill meant to restrain companies from union busting and giving a few unions a little bit of benefits when it comes to their taxes. And then, of course, we will end a day with our daily delight. A story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. But that's enough rambling from me. Let's jump in to our daily debate. So all too often in America, it feels as though we are always dancing around a very important issue when having specific conversations about different policies, different values that we want implemented on a social level. And this key thing that we're dancing around, in my opinion, is the lack of understanding of the consequences of our actions. And this is something that I feel has been ever more obvious in an age of social media, where your actions are disconnected from the consequences. You can say something rude to somebody online and not have to deal with them being frustrated and trying to punch you in the face, per se. You can bully someone online without having them retaliate to you in person. They can just send a few mean words across the screen. And this is something that I feel like is a very key issue in a world where, at the end of the day, Every single thing you do out in the real world has a consequence. If you choose to eat that extra candy bar, you may be up half a pound tomorrow. If you choose to drink that extra little bit of caffeine, you may be jittery for the next few hours. And I know these are very small examples, but they point to the fact that every decision we make has consequences. And when you start to disconnect the two, when you start to say that, oh, no, no, I can do this without having to worry about the consequences, without genuinely thinking about it, it can become dangerous when you start thinking about bigger decisions that have an even larger impact on your life. And if you're in public office, an even larger impact on your constituents or the people that you're representing. So my question to you is, am I crazy? Have we lost sense of consequences? And... If you agree with me, how do we bring it back into our society? How do we ensure that the next generation understands the consequences of their actions and how that every decision they make, whether it be small, large, medium-sized, is an important one that they genuinely need to think through. Not overthink, but think through and make sure that's given the time of day that is required. All right, that's enough rambling about the daily debate. Let's jump to our first article. This one comes from the Daily Signal, and it is quite on topic, the price of eliminating consequences. So the author starts by highlighting the summer of love, the idea that for months on end, protesters can go around, some would argue rioters, can go around and do whatever they want with impunity, that they're not going to get arrested. And even if they do get arrested, they'll get put out on bail. And if they don't get put out on bail, then they may not even be prosecuted. 
and how dangerous this thought, pro- thought process that stems from that is, which is, oh, I can do what I want without having to deal with any of the consequences. There is a certain level of impunity there. They feel as though that at the end of the day, if they wanted to do something worse, they could because they've gotten away with it so many times in the past. That's what the author's trying to argue here. And I'll start with a nice little quote from the article. Quote, recently there were some remarkable online videos of a Good Samaritan in Portland, Oregon, confronting shoplifters and forcing them to dump loads of their proliferated goods. More stunning, however, was the sheer outrage of the thieves. They pouted, they screamed, they resisted. How dare anyone stop them from stealing anything they wished? The criminals entertained no fear of any consequences for walking out with bags of things that were not theirs. They had no care that the mainstreaming of their habits would undermine the entire fabric of society. What is common to the pandemic of smash and grab, carjackings, fighting on airplanes while in flight, and deadly Saturday night shootouts is this same apparent assurance. There will be no consequences, end quote. And this is what the author's really getting at here, which is the lack of consequences for small things, for even going into a store and deciding to take what you wish and realizing or believing that there are no consequences. You will not be prosecuted. Nobody will stop you. No one will follow up on the video. There will not be a consumer who's at the store who has a gun who will try to stop you that there are no consequences, there are no barriers for you doing what you're doing, that has ripple effects that go further beyond just that one community, just that one store where you're taking it from. What it speaks to is a decay in society. It speaks to the fact that when people get away with this once, when people feel as though they do not have to adhere to laws because either one, the enforcement mechanism, the police, the lawyers, the judicial system won't actually care and won't actually come after them, or two, because they are somehow exempt from it because they have not dealt with the consequences of their actions before, it leads to wider trends that are extremely dangerous. And what this author is trying to do is correlate all of these. And the way he frames it here makes it sound, or at least the way I just framed it, it makes it sound like, oh, well, these small things, that's what is leading to these bigger issues. Oh, as he points out, the flights on the airliners, the fights on the airliners as they're in flight or Saturday night shootouts that, oh, this is a symptom of these smaller things. And what I think I should probably highlight or point out here is I actually think this is a symptom, not a cause in that all of these things are symptoms of our wider society's issue with taking the consequences of our actions into consideration before we do something. I feel as though, at the end of the day, while they are connected, it's not a one-for-one saying, oh, just because these people are robbing these stores and they're not caring about what other people are going to do, they're taking whatever they want, just because they're robbing these stores, that's going to cause an issue at the society level. Don't get me wrong. If younger people in the community see this and they're like, oh, we, Uncle Jimmy was able to get away with stealing something from Walgreens without having to pay for it? Well, I guess I can do it too. That will cause a ripple effect 
down the chain. But I think what these examples really do point to is that we already have an issue of ensuring that people understand the consequences of their actions. And yes, I know you've probably heard me say consequences of their actions so many times, and you're probably already tired of it. But it is something that I want to highlight, and I want to make sure that I'm not misconstrued. While I think that these sort of ordeals will most definitely cause further issues of understanding the consequences and understanding that there is a certain amount of responsibility one has when making any decision, no matter how small, I think it more it would be more accurate to say that it is a systemic issue. Our society as a whole has a responsibility issue. People don't want to sit down and understand that it's not someone else. It's not someone else's fault that these things are happening. It is not a nebulous system that you can't see's fault for doing something. You have agency in your life. You have control over certain aspects of your life. And that means that at the end of the day, you have to be responsible for your decisions. You can't blame negative outcomes on somebody else while taking credit for the beneficial things that happen during your life. And I think, once again, that is another symptom that we see. A lot of people like to play the victim in America. And let's be clear, there are legitimate victims not trying to dismiss anything they've gone through. But there's an overall sense that, well, no, no, I didn't do it. It's not my fault. Somebody else did it to me. There's a system in place that is hedging their bets against me, that is trying to keep me down. And I know that I do speak to this very often on this podcast. I speak about systems that are in place, big tech, big corporations, big this, big that, that are actively working against people. But I'm not ever, if you listen to those, I'm not ever trying to say that you can't overcome them. I'm trying to say that through your personal actions and group actions with people that want to fight against these big corporations, you can take responsibility into your hands and you can be the difference. You can't let these big corporations that hold lots of power simply hold you down because you believe that, oh, well, they have too much power. They have too much institutional control. We can't do anything about it. We're just victims. This is a mentality that is seen all throughout American culture. And again, I believe that this is another symptom of the issue that is at the core problem of this, which is the elimination of understanding the consequences that one, you have agency over your life, and two, all actions have an opposite and equal reaction. Newton said it himself. Therefore, all actions have consequences. And both of these things combined, these two thoughts, that you understand that your actions have consequences, therefore, it's important that you think them through, but also understanding that you have agency in your life. You have the ability to take your life by the reins, no matter how hard it is, no matter how many people you think are against you. You can do it. These two things together help develop a responsible person. And this is what I feel like we're missing in our society. We're missing that understanding that I have to be responsible for myself, but also I have to be responsible for my mother, my father, my loved one, my wife, my children. You have to ensure that on a societal level, people understand these two things. They have agency, 
They can change their situation. They have the ability to be better if they want to be. And also that they have responsibilities and they have actions that are going to lead to certain outcomes that they can uptake. And in doing so, you instill a sense of responsibility in these people. And then they can understand how to be a responsible human being, not just for themselves, but for the people that depend on them, for the people that love them. And this is how we build a stronger society, in my opinion. I think this, this lack of understanding of consequences really, like I said, it's a symptom, and it speaks to the cultural decay that we have been through. There's a lack of responsibility or a lack of caring about responsibility in American culture nowadays. And it's extremely, extremely dangerous because of the examples that this author gives here. I'll pull out another quote. Quote, and why not? After 120 days of rioting, looting, arson, and assault in the summer of 2020, which resulted in few Antifa indictments, fewer convictions, and almost no imprisonments, the broken windows theory of policing in the 1990s and 200s, sorry, 2000s, showed how the failure to punish even minor infraction soon leads to escalation to more violent crimes. The homeless take for granted the ancient rules forbidding urination, defecation, fornification, and ejection on the sidewalks do not apply to them. And is it any wonder that they are increasingly not victims of circumstance, but victimizers of innocent passerbys, end quote. And what that highlights here is that transition, that transition from believing they are victims to not believing that the rules apply to them because they're not dealing with the consequences of their actions because they've internalized this thought process of being a victim. And then from there, believing they can get away with more or just simply acting out more because they haven't had to face the consequences of their past decisions. You can see the line of logic that the author goes through right here. And though he doesn't state it outright, it really does speak to what I just highlighted over the last few minutes, and that's why I wanted to point it out. And I think, honestly, it begins when you're a little kid. Uh, To be honest, I had two very different systems when I was younger. I had a grandmother who loved me to death, never believed I could be the person doing anything wrong, always forgave me, and I had a mother who, when I got in trouble, it was like, what did he do? What happened here? How is he responsible? Even if I was in league with somebody else, it was never, oh, well, this other person made him do it. It was, okay, you may have been in league with somebody else, but how did you screw up in this situation? And though I didn't love it at the time, I look back and I understand that that is extremely important because it taught me to really sit down and say, what part did I play and what went wrong here? And I'm not trying to say I'm perfect. Don't get me wrong. I still do blame other things on other people. And I catch myself doing it sometimes, not on a daily basis, but pretty regularly. And I have to stop and say, where did I go wrong with this? And that's another thing, this battle for responsibility, this battle for understanding the circumstances that have led to certain situations and understanding the part that you've played in them. It takes a constant analysis. You can't just be a passive observer. You actually have to sit down and say, where did I go wrong in this? You actually have to be self-aware which is sometimes very painful for people. And I think that's another reason that 
on a societal level, we don't actually do this as much because people don't want to sit down and self-analyze. And you know why? Because it's painful. It's not fun to call yourself out. It's not fun to criticize yourself. It freaking sucks sometimes. But it is extremely important when trying to ensure that we have more optimal outcomes in the future. You don't want to make those same mistakes again, do you? You have agency, so you realize that you control that situation and you understand the negative outcomes and you don't blame it on anybody else. Those two things, mixed with the fact that you want a better outcome, mean that you're going to sit down in an ideal world. You're going to sit down, you're going to analyze why it went wrong, and you're going to try to do better next time. And you're going to understand that you have the power to make it better next time, at least ideally. Now, obviously, it's hard to do, but I just wanted to really highlight this article. And obviously, it was a very quick one. I only grabbed one or two quotes from it. There are a whole wealth of quotes in here. And if you want to get to it, there will be a link in the description below the like and subscribe button where you can find all of these articles. And speaking of all of these articles, let's jump to our next one because I've spent enough time ranting about that. This one comes from the Washington Post from the editorial board. The United States has a debt problem. Biden's budget won't solve it. And when you see something like this come out from the New York Post, sorry, from the Washington Post, it, it immediately grabbed my attention because normally the Washington Post comes down on the side of Democrats. Not always. The editorial board has always been more mixed in their opinions for sure. But when I saw this, I was like, okay, it must be not great if the editorial board is coming out and saying even Biden's plan's not going to work to the optimal. And, you know, we've obviously understood that we do have a debt crisis here in America, at least now. And we've been running above the deficit for years and years and years. And while Biden does claim that we are going to be lowering the deficit, that doesn't mean that we're getting rid of the deficit. That means that we're still spending above what we're making. It just means we're spending a little bit less than maybe the year before. So you may have heard that Biden has a new plan to address this. And the editorial board has some very strong opinions about how this will actually play out. I'm going to start with a quote here. Quote, stabilizing the debt should be a top priority for Mr. Biden and Congress. That starts with setting a clear goal. A reasonable target would be aiming to not have the debt exceed the size of the economy. So a 100% debt to gross domestic product ratio. And why is this important? Why does it matter? Because at the end of the day, if your debt exceeds how much your economy makes in a year, if everybody was to come calling at once, you would not have the means to pay them off. Now, let's be clear. It's not like the government could seize every single piece of the GDP, the gross domestic product that comes out during a year and then hand it over to the debtors to pay off all of the debt. That is obviously not feasible. That's not realistic. But the point here is that if you have more debt than you're producing as a country, it's an extremely dangerous game to be playing because then people may start to lose confidence. They may be saying, well, you have $200 trillion worth of debt. This is not a real number. This is just me making an analogy. You have $200 trillion in debt and you only make $192 trillion per year. So how could I guarantee that I'll be at the front of the line able to get my money when I come calling for it? And this is something that 
has always been a sticking point and a big fear of a lot of economists. Then again, the Washington Post does point out that when we had a 66% debt-to-gross-domestic-product ratio, people were calling it out, saying it was a huge issue almost two decades ago. And yet we've kept on drudging on to what we currently have now. And let's jump back to the quote because they do describe what the current situation is. Quote, currently, the debt is 98% the size of the economy and on track to hit 118% in a decade, largely because of soaring costs from the baby boomers retiring and heftier interest payments, according to the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office. It doesn't take a PhD in accounting to see the warning sign here. A debt as big or bigger than the economy and the interest costs become so onerous that there is little money left for anything else. By 2033, the nation will be spending more on paying creditors than on the entire defense budget, end quote. And you can see how this is an issue over time. Because, you know, at the end of the day, a lot of countries take out debt. That's not a huge issue. They need to take out debt for huge spending, different projects, things of this nature, ensuring that they can give the benefits to their citizens. But at the end of the day, the more debt you take out, and if you're taking out debt on the debt, if you're taking out debt in order to pay debt, normally that's going to come with a higher interest rate. And if people look at the United States and they're saying, oh, okay, well, they have about $200 trillion in debt right now, and I already bought some of their debt last year, and they were calling to me to you know, buy their debt again. Well, they already owe me money. So to entice me to buy their debt, I'm going to need a higher interest rate to ensure that I'm going to get my money's worth. Even if I don't get paid back the principal, at least I'll get high interest. So you can see how this is an upward spiral. The more debt that's out there, the more people think it's a little bit risky, meaning they need higher interest rates to buy the debt, and then it just goes up from there because at the end of the day, we're not paying it off quick enough, or at least we're not slowing spending enough. That's the Washington Post editorial board's argument. They're not slowing spending enough to at least pay off that previous debt before we're taking on a whole bunch of new debt. And obviously, this has been the case. It's not just Biden. It's been the case under Trump. It's been the case under Obama and even during the Bush years. I think the last time we didn't run a deficit for a single year was under the Clinton administration. So obviously, we've had a lot of big spenders, a lot of people promising a lot of things to many different portions of the population. But the American people need to come back and say, they need to do a value assessment. They need to ask, at what point are we willing to not get these benefits that we want? And that's always hard for politicians. Politicians have a really hard time saying we need to cut these programs because once you give something to someone, it is extremely, extremely hard to take it away, especially when elections are the next year or two years away. So the American people need to, one, understand that we are headed towards a debt problem. We always have been headed towards a debt problem ever since we left the gold standard and even before that. And we need to ask ourselves, what are we willing to give up? What programs are we willing to cut? And obviously, we're never going to find one that everybody is okay with cutting. But maybe there's a majority, a plurality of a, the population that's willing to cut certain things. 
and save a little bit of money here or there. Or maybe in the future we could just stop asking for as much from our politicians. Then again, I don't necessarily know if all Americans are asking for a whole lot. Politicians are just kind of offering a whole lot in order to get into office because that's the current American system. What can you, the American people, what can you give me sitting at the negotiating table? What can you give me for my vote? And then the government politicians come out and say, well, I can give you this, 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 and this. So at the end of the day, we need to reevaluate. We need to ask ourselves, what is worth it? Is the American economy completely going under worth the extra $200,000 in payment that's going to this program and that program? I don't know. For me, I don't, I don't necessarily think so. But then again, I'm a young, how do you say, idealistic very naive college students, so maybe I don't see the full picture. But I think there is a conversation that needs to be had here, and most people aren't willing to have it because there are certain benefits that everybody enjoys. There are certain benefits that only a small portion of the population enjoys, but they're still loud enough that when someone talks about cutting them or getting rid of them, there's going to be backlash. And politicians, they don't like backlash. They like it to be nice and easy, not too hard. Now, that's enough from this article. Let's jump to our last article. Democrats unveil bills to restrain union busting, giving union members tax benefits. This one comes from Truth Out. And normally I do a little intro, but we're going to jump straight to the quotes since we're a little, little pressed for time. The first quote is, Senate Democrats introduced two bills on Thursday that would chip away at major advantages that employers hold in union campaigns and disputes by tweaking tax laws. One bill, the No Tax Breaks for Union Busting Act, well, look at that sleek, amazing, not hard to say name whatsoever. Sorry, let's jump back to it. Quote, would bar companies from writing off union busting expenses as business expenses on their taxes, effectively ending taxpayer subsidization of union busting as a press release on the bills put out. Economists have estimated that employers spend $340 million on union busted yearly, often hiring expensive anti-union lawyers and consultants, but are able to write these expenses off the same way they can write off things like employee health benefits, end quote. And I think this is a really interesting and very tactical way of taking on this issue. Whether you agree with union busting or not, whether you believe that workers should be able to collectively organize or not, I think is a very smooth move by the Democratic policymakers saying at the end of the day, okay, if you want to bust unions, hey, go for it. It's still the free market. You can do what you want. But we're not going to let those expenses ride for free and be written off as just normal business expenses we're going to actually tax them a little bit differently. It's a clever, underhanded move. And I think if the government's going to do something like this, if they're going to step in and tell companies that you can't union bust, I think this is a less heavy-handed way of doing it, saying, okay, fine, you just have to take on those expenses and the taxes from them a little bit differently. You're going to have to pay a little bit of extra money rather than writing these off as business expenses. I think it's a clever way to go about it. And it really, at the end of the day, forces companies to make a more economical decision rather than simply saying, okay, is this union going to cost me more in wages? It's also, is 
fighting this union going to cost me more in taxes and other bills that I'm going to incur from this process of fighting union organization? Like I said, very clever. And it's a more market-oriented way of fixing this problem or addressing this problem rather than the government saying you can't stop these union busting or these union activities altogether. Like I said, not too heavy-handed, and like I said, interesting tactical approach. Let's talk about the second bill, though. Quote, the other bill, the Tax Fairness for Workers Act, would restore union members' abilities to deduct union dues from their taxes, a benefit that Republicans nixed in their 2017 tax overhaul. It would allow union members to subtract dues from their gross incomes, allowing workers to receive the tax benefit regardless of whether or not they itemize their taxes, end quote. And to be fair to them, I think this bill, there's obviously more to it than this, but the lowdown summary is also a very tactical way of supporting unions. Now, I don't actually agree with it, just because while I think it is clever, and it has been this way for a long time before 2017, where union members can subtract their dues, I would say the same thing that I said for the first part of the article. If you want to make a decision to be part of a union, if you want to take on that responsibility, then you have to pay the dues to the union. That's a normal process. So then why is the federal government stepping in and saying, okay, well, now that you're taking on those costs, we're actually going to give you a benefit. So you can join a union at no cost because you take those tax, those union dues out of your uh, gross income on your taxes later that year. It's a way of subsidizing, enforcing a certain type of behavior or encouraging a certain type of behavior. And I think, if anything, I don't think the government, and let's be clear, obviously I would be, it's be wildly inconsistent for me to hold this across all of my views. But at the end of the day, I think, if anything, the government should be discouraging certain behavior rather than incentivizing other behavior. Now, of course, there are exceptions with subsidies. But in this case, I think at the end of the day, if you want to join a union, join a union. Great. But when you join that union, you understand that your union dues are a part of your obligation to that union. And it's an obligation that is necessary because at the end of the day, that union is working for you. They are trying to get you better wages, trying to get you better working conditions. But then don't turn around and then try to take the income or sorry, the dues out of your gross income on taxes because now you're just getting a free membership essentially. Essentially. It's not directly the same thing, but you're essentially getting a free admission into an organization that is already going to increase your wages. How about you pay for those wage increases? I Maybe I'm a little bit backwards on this one. Maybe my not so favorable to unions bias is showing through. But at the end of the day, I think it's very interesting that they're taking a similar approach through taxes that affect both sides of the union negotiate the union process, the company side and the union and worker side, and how these two things caused a little bit of a different thought process in me when I was reading through it. And like I said, maybe my bias is coming through here and maybe I'm not being logically consistent. If you think that's the case, throw it down in the comment sections, call me out. We can have an actual conversation about it. But 
at the end of the day, there are these two bills coming through, and they're likely to get passed, and they're going to encourage more union membership, or at least the creation of more unions and likely to increase union membership. All right. With all that said, let's jump to our daily delight. This one comes from CBS News. Pittsburgh Zoo and Aquarium welcomes a newborn western lowland gorilla, a critically endangered species. And so there's this mother, Ebo. She is 32 years old right now, and she just had her second little gorilla baby. Quote, with this new baby coming later in life, Ebo is a great mom, Karen Vaco, assistant curator of animals at the zoo, said. She is showing off the baby, cradling and nursing. She naturally knows what to do and doesn't need any intervention from the staff. We're tracking their progress, and they're both doing really well, end quote. So the baby hasn't been given a name yet, and that's what this article is highlighting. And there is a location, there's a link here in this article where you can go, and for a $5 donation, you can actually be a part of the naming process, or at least give a suggestion for a name of the newborn gorilla baby. And I think if you want to do that, if you want to jump in on it, great thing. Like I said, there will be a link in the description that has this article, where you can see all the cute videos and photos of the baby gorilla, and find the link in order to submit a name. And also down there, as I was discussing earlier, you can find all the other articles from today where you can kind of dive in, go a little bit deeper on the things that we discussed. All right. Down there, you'll also find the podcast link to at Spotify, Pocket Cast, Podvine, Google Podcasts, and the Twitter handle at Your Daily Flip, where you can get a direct link to these YouTube videos on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. With all that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.